the, there is a problem around examining bodies. You see, with many examining bodies, there is a bit of a sense of if it isn't rational and cannot be measured, it's not relevant here. I would propose that theatre and psychology are very, very closely related. In fact, they're kind of different manifestations of the same thing, the exploration of the human condition. It was Shakespeare himself who said the purpose of playing, by which he meant acting, is to hold the mirror up to nature. In other words, for us to look at ourselves. Um, but I think that we're still way behind in terms of government perspective and how our government sets curriculums and exams. And also, what kind of exams do you do around inner education? That's another thing which I think presents a dilemma that, that many don't want to have to address. But we are great at educating the head. We are far less good at educating the heart. The focus for young people on examinations and the pressure on them around academic examinations, many in academic subjects that will never really be that relevant to their later working lives, versus the amount of, how small the amount of time that focuses on their tremendous emotional development, turbulence and um, awakening that happens in teenage years. The balance is really way out on that, in my opinion. You only have to look at many of the abuses of the political and corporate world to see that we simply cannot afford to have men and women in senior leadership roles who are largely unaware or indifferent to their emotional motivations for why they Absolutely. do what they The changes involved are so radical that it's taken many people far too long to accept them and wake up to them. This inner work is absolutely vital and I think that, uh, you know, it is a very radical re-examining of the system. I mean, this is one of the things I say to students every day is you'll do maths a certain amount of your time. You'll do native language a certain amount of your time. You'll do physics or chemistry a certain amount of your time. But you live with your feeling states day and night all through your life. When uh, I do this work in schools, there is a real hunger for it amongst students. And a lot of them will say, why aren't we addressing these questions far more often and more deeply? We are definitely more of a culture that has been for a long time emotion, uh, uh, what we might call emotionally phobic. Kindness. Kindness. That we are kinder to each other and more respectful of each other's lives and feelings. And you can do that and still develop a highly educated and academically rigorous curriculum as well. Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. My name is Gabriel Scheid and I'm here to host a space for Conversations on the future of learning, on how schools might evolve, on the future of education, and essentially on how to make change happen so that, amongst other initiatives, these conversations are not needed anymore and we can focus on what happens. 
Every episode, we will be hosting educators, teachers, principals, authors, speakers, education entrepreneurs, and in the immortal words of D.H. Lawrence, the dreamers of the day, those who live their dreams with open eyes and make them happen. And today we have a very, very special guest. Uh, we're very happy to host Ben Walden. Ben is originally an actor. Uh, he played in the 90s several leading roles in London West End. And uh, he was a member of the inaugural company at the new Shakespeare's Globe. Uh, Ben is a keynote speaker at conferences worldwide. He's one of the most sought-after speakers in the world. He's the founder and director of Contender Charlie, his own company, uh, with which he tours the world, delivering inspirational lessons on leadership through Shakespeare. Uh, most importantly, he's, he's a personal friend um, and one of the people with whom I've had the most interesting conversations in, in my life. How are you, Ben? Good, good, Gabriel. Good to good to see you. Good to hear you again. Ben, you have a unique perspective uh, because of your life and what you do. You've you've been an uh, you, you've been an actor. You've starred at some of the, the most fabulous places. Um, you've done corporate work. Spoke to the spoke to world leaders. Uh, you've done a little bit of everything. But w what moves you now? What what is it that you're interested in now in your life? Well, the, I mean, there's a lot of things and I'm not going to bore your listeners by going into all of them. Um, the, the plight of Manchester United Football Club and why they won't sack Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would come quite near the top at the that's, moment. That's, that's even better than Shakespeare, right? Yeah, they need a new manager badly. Anyway, the, um, they need a new board, I think. Anyway, um, the main, some of the other things. That Is I'm that a school metaphor or what? Sorry. What a new board? No, <laughs> the, the new manager. <laughs> this is a corporate metaphor for, for, for that particular football club. Private um, school, did you say? No. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's some people around there are behaving like children. That's certainly the case. Um, the, uh, the, my primary interest otherwise at the moment would, would be around working in education and some of the aspects of education that are to do with inner education. So in other words, Um, to do with um, our, our self-understanding, our self-regulation, our understanding of our feeling states, uh, our understanding of their vital importance in leadership, in communication, in well-being, in all these areas. So a huge amount of my work now really with schools is around that, with, with staff and with students. One of your starting points in in your workshops is Shakespeare and some of Shakespeare's uh, plays one of the paradoxes that I always found when you know I, I've listened to you over and over again and it gets better every day that what you extract from Shakespeare is not what they teach in schools can you reflect on that like you work on leadership life profound lessons and, and Shakespeare in schools is delivered mostly because of English Yeah, I mean, it depends on the teacher, of course. I know full well that there are some very inspiring English teachers out there who do amazing things with the teaching of Shakespeare in, in their classrooms. But the, the focus of examinations is far more in the realm of literary criticism. And literary criticism has its place, but it's not necessarily particularly inspiring for young people. And it's very much an academic exercise. And Shakespeare is not primarily an academic exercise. For one thing, 
The plays were not written to be read. They were written to be seen. In Shakespeare's lifetime, there were no um, openly published versions of the plays. There were what are sometimes called the quartos and versions that had been written up from actors getting together. But the folio of Shakespeare, which we now know as the complete works of Shakespeare, didn't come till after his death. So the plays were written to be heard and seen and they are ultimately emotional exercises. They are exercises in emotion, feeling states and extraordinary storytelling uh, with some of the most uh, powerfully um, uh, deep rooted depth psychology characters ever written, if not the most. I mean, if you're looking at a study of tyranny, Macbeth is one of the great studies in the history of, of, of literature, psychology and tyranny. Um, if you're looking at inspirational leadership under pressure, Shakespeare's Henry V is an extraordinary version of that. Um, if you're looking at collaboration, communication and intimacy, as you like it, for instance, and the journey that Rosalind takes herself on and also many of the others in the forest through is, is around that. So yes, Shakespeare was writing hundreds of years ago. Yes, the language for some people now is, is, is archaic. It's very beautiful, but it can be difficult to understand. School children in, in or school, school, young people in the UK would feel that way just as much as they would in, say, Buenos Aires. It, it, it does feel hard work, the language, beautiful though it is for many people. But the, the emotional depth and the complexity of feeling and the expression of feeling in the characters and around many of the great themes of leadership and interrelation between people are almost unparalleled. I don't think that even Carl Jung or Marie-Louise von Franz or Sigmund Freud can quite match Shakespeare in the complexity of what he reveals about our inner lives. The reason I asked you that, Ben, is I've seen school-aged children enthralled by you as you bring to life some of these uh, uh, dimensions of Shakespeare, and the same children then going to lessons and being utterly bored by school. Um, how much is that a reflection of how school is actually not giving the right contents to, to students in terms of that we're probably still focused on the instrumental, superficial, technical aspects of all things as opposed to the, the real depth of meaning that lies within? Well, I think that what you've just described is what I have often felt is one of the biggest challenges and most major problems facing world education. So I don't think it's just an issue around Shakespeare. Um, I also, I, I do appreciate there are going to be a lot of English teachers and drama teachers out there who go, hey, my class isn't like that and I get my kids really engaged. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm very aware of that and I've worked with many of those teachers, but the, the, there is a problem around examining bodies. You see, with many examining bodies, there is a bit of a sense of if it isn't rational and cannot be measured, it's not relevant here. But of course, when you're dealing with something like a Shakespeare play, which is an extraordinary reflection of hu the human condition, it's not going to be rational always. And it's not always going to be easily measured and if a, if a student is given a question like examining themes of comic retribution in act three of much ado about nothing, that's not going to be very interesting for them compared to a question like, is Macbeth typical of bad political leaders? If so, why? 
how do we change this? You know, the, the, those questions are much more of our time and also have much more emotional content. I mean, another great question would be something like, why does Macbeth behave the way he does? What, what is going on it, that, that Macbeth makes such decisions? So in other words, what, what is behind Macbeth's decision-making from a more emotional perspective? You know, this takes us on a journey into our own feeling states and our fears around control and our need for power or our need for position around our own inner narcissism. All, all these kind of issues start to emerge. And of course, we can also act them out and talk them and speak them and really examine more deeply the motivation behind feeling states. And that's a very exciting use of Shakespeare. I'm not pretending for one minute it's the only use of Shakespeare, but I think it's a very exciting one and, and can be a much more engaging one for students. Ben, can you reflect on, as, as you became older, more mature in your own search for meaning, your transition from being an actor to being an educator and a speaker? Yeah, the the acting was was the great passion. It's it's what I always wanted to do. And uh, I well, as you probably as some will have picked up at the start of this podcast, I also loved sports and football and, and hoped to be a footballer, but I was never good enough. Um, but I was good at, at acting and I went into the theatre and I was lucky, like anyone who does well in acting is, in my opinion, um, you need a lot of luck in that profession. And um, I played a number of lead roles in West End theatres and things at the Globe and stuff on British TV and things like that. And that was a part of it that I loved and would have happily have done forever. But there was an opportunity, the theatre director Richard Olivier, who is the son of the actor Lawrence Olivier and an extraordinary actor and theatre director called Mark Rylance, who now works a lot with Steven Spielberg, they gave me a chance to look at Shakespeare from a different perspective and run some programs of the kind we're describing around leadership and Shakespeare and, and communication skills. And when I did that, I felt, felt like I'd connected with something really important for my own journey. And it was much more based in the realm of psychology. See, for me, I would propose that theatre and psychology are very, very closely related. In fact, they're kind of different manifestations of the same thing, the exploration of the human condition. It was Shakespeare himself who said the purpose of playing, by which he meant acting, is to hold the mirror up to nature. In other words, for us to look at ourselves. Um, and uh, psychology was something I realised really interested me. And looking at theatre through that lens was something that really interested me. And Shakespeare was a fantastic tool for that. Now, what, what happened then is that I started working, as you mentioned in your introduction, with a lot of corporate leaders. And uh, they were very generous. And a lot of them would feel very cynical, understandably, about doing Shakespeare with leadership and then would really warm to it. And we got fantastic feedback, mainly because we didn't ask anyone to do any acting. We were asking them to look, examine their own workplaces and, and their decision-making, not pretend to be Shakespeare characters, um, through the lens of the big themes of the plays. And I started working with a few head teachers, and it was at that point that I realised that the greatest interest for me was um, uh, schools and working with, with school leaders and with staff and with students. So the psychology of our inner lives and our inner motivation is the thing that has really come to interest me more than ever. 
Um, and now I'm at the point where I'm even considering doing a, a what is a very extended training to study as a, a analytical psychologist or as what is sometimes called a union analyst, which is a, a lot of years of work. But I've been working with archetypal psychology a lot in what I do for years, and, and it draws me more and more. The, the reason for that is that I think we have a very, you know, many students, uh, not, as, not as many as I would like, but many students have access to a really good academic education. I think we're still a very, very long way from access to a really outstanding emotional education and self-awareness education. And I, I couldn't agree more that, that we are, we're lacking in the social, social emotional dimension and personal growth. In, in your very broad view, having been around the world in many different types of schools, why is that still not mainstream in the curriculum? And what can we do well, to change that? Um, many people, of course, have spoken on this theme. I mean, for instance, very famously, Ken Robinson speaks about this in his TED Talks and how creativity is really still very much on the sidelines in, in terms of conventional curriculum. I do think it is worth expressing. I mean, you would be a case in point, Gabriel, that there are many educators out there who are looking to change these things. But I think that we're still way behind in terms of government perspective and how government sets curriculums and exams. And also, what kind of exams do you do around inner education? That's another thing which I think presents a dilemma that, that many don't want to have to address. Obviously, there is a long historic um, precedent here. There was a time when we were educating young people for a specific job that they would possibly do all their lives, often in industry, in, in what were often pretty dependable long-term careers. And so there was a, what, what was sometimes been referred to as an industrialized model of education. That model is now not entirely, but largely out of date, badly out of date. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to come on any of your podcasts and talk about that. But one of the issues has become that we are great, at obviously I'm saying this as a metaphor, but we are great at educating the head. We are far less good at educating the heart. And I think there is an academic perspective from some people in academia, not all, that would say, oh, listen to this ridiculous actor, you know, pontificating away what does he know about academic rigor you know what you know what 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 nonsense what spurious nonsense to talk about educating the heart we need rigorous academic thinking well if you put academics in charge of education they will make it all about academia it, you know if i suppose you know just as bad if you put actors in charge of education which is not something i'm recommending the world does you would find that probably, you know, theatrical expression would become a, a central theme in, in, in education. I think the balance is, is what we're looking for here. And it is still massively out of balance. If you think particularly for teenage years and, and adolescent education, the focus for young people on examinations and the pressure on them around academic examinations, many in academic subjects that will never really be that relevant to their later working lives versus the amount of, how small the amount of time that focuses on their tremendous emotional development, turbulence and um, awakening that happens in teenage years. The balance is really way out on that, in my opinion. And, and I work with many, many 
extraordinary young people in my view. They're not always doing well academically. It's kind of the greatest privilege in what I do. And many of them have very big, powerful, emotional questions that just aren't getting answered. And, and, and there's, well, not even answered, but addressed, because some of the answers are very complicated. And uh, it, it reminds me a little in that respect of Hamlet. You know, Hamlet wants to talk about the real key underlying motivational factors behind decision-making and behind why people are doing what they're doing. And everyone around him basically just says, can you just shut up and play the game and not ask these difficult questions? And he doesn't want to do it that way. Uh, now, I wouldn't wish the fate that befalls Hamlet to befall anybody. But what I would say is, I think that we're really onto something about the fact that we have to look at inner motivation. And, and one final thing on this, Gabriel, you only have to look at many of the abuses of the political and corporate world to see that we simply cannot afford to have men and women in senior leadership roles who are largely unaware or indifferent to their emotional motivations for why they Absolutely. do Absolutely. Yeah. Ben, um, how do you feel about the work that you do? In, in, like you and I have worked over many years and, and uh, done leadership workshops here in Argentina and we've had countless joyful experiences, but I feel that it was just like an aspirin, no, that what we did was a, like a drop of water in the ocean and that, yeah, it served a purpose and hopefully all that you do and what little we've done has made an impact on those children. But why is that just a, you know, an afterthought, an add-on and not a mainstream part of what, what people do? What, what will it take for that to change? My, my own perspective on this is that some changes are so big and so radical. I mean, let's take, for instance, the, the most important probably of our times, which is the climate change um, uh, challenges that we face. The changes involved are so radical that it's taken many people far too long to accept them and wake up to them because it's just so much change with so many implications. Now, Um, I think that or perhaps on a smaller scale, the same thing is the case with what you've just asked, that to really turn education to be far more focused on well-being and emotional self-awareness and psychological development, understanding, I mean, let me just say a bit more about what I mean by that, understanding the patterns within my society, my family, my wider culture and the effect that is having on how I see the world and the lens through which I see the world and how I respond to pressure and difficulties and adversity emotionally is a full, is a strong education in itself. And I just think the feeling at the moment is we're not equipped for it. We haven't trained people for it. Um, it's, a, it's a very different mode of education. We cannot ignore the crucial aspects of academia, which I agree with. You shouldn't ignore the crucial aspects of academia. So the result of all of that is, I think there's a sense of it's too big a change. It's too big a debate. There isn't the time. Let's just stick to what we know. Ben, before we move on to leadership, I want to react to that because I think your metaphor of climate change is excellent. And this is, again, a personal opinion, but I think one of the reasons why it's taken so long for people to accept and act upon climate change is that with, again, for very valid reasons, some of the earlier manifestations regarding climate change were so radicalized that, it, that, it, that they put people off. And in terms of personal development in, and education, some of the contemplative practices sometimes have sounded so esoteric and out of the world and kind of left field that maybe that has been 
uh, a barrier for them to be implemented mainstream in schools. Shouldn't we also change the narrative? Like what you just said, you cannot even be, we need to redefine success, but even if you accept success in the conventional wisdom, you cannot be successful in the conventional way unless you are what you just mentioned. Well, you can be successful without um, emotional intelligence skills. And indeed, the world is littered with cool For a short time, for a short time, until it catches up with you. Who cause intense damage as they act out their unconscious needs and then basically, you know, get reelected. I mean, that happens all over the world. So uh, there, is a, there is a lot of complexity around that. But in terms of what we would, what I think would, would build a much healthier, thriving world, which affects all kinds of things, including the vital crucial issue of climate change and how we we work with the resources that we have on our planet the, this inner work is absolutely vital and i think that uh, you know it is a very radical re-examining of the system and as a result of that it's very difficult now to, to address your other point there are always going to be those on the fringe of debates who will have an out will have a, an outlook and perspective that puts people off, and, and and sometimes it puts them off for good reasons. You know, it there is there there can be. I mean, I think spirituality is also a very important issue in all this, and and for and what we mean by that word and how it affects our lives. But obviously, if people start lecturing about, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, aspects of. Um, uh, uh, you know, chakras and, and heart math and, you know, I'm in my Gaia energies today and all this. There are a lot of people who are going to go, oh, please, you know, shut up. You know, I, I'm sorry I don't buy into this. Yeah. You know, what do you mean by those things? Please, let's have a little more scientific rigor around what you're referring to there. Um, and yes, okay, there will be, you know, a broad spectrum, of course. But I think that the area, what we cannot deny, I mean, this is one of the things I say to students every day is you'll do maths a certain amount of your time. You'll do native language a certain amount of your time. You'll do physics or chemistry a certain amount of your time. But you live with your feeling states day and night all through your life. And where people have experienced more significant trauma or where people are going through a tough time in their life, and all of us at some point will, will go through tough times, no one gets out of this too easy, um, then we need that inner education, which we, we pick up bits of in the world from good mentors, from good parenting, which is obviously a, a vital help in this kind of thing. But it could be a far deeper, richer, more focused curriculum. And we're just not going there. And I think that this is increasingly causing enormous problems. The other thing that, that I have noticed without doubt is that when uh, I do this work in schools, there is a real hunger for it amongst students. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will say, why aren't we addressing these questions far more often and more deeply around, you know, who am I within this wider society that I meet? How am I changing? How do I respond to deeper feelings of anger or sadness or grief or indeed joy that I have? And how do I become a more emotionally intelligent communicator? All these things. I can say for certain that those things are going to be important to them in most careers they would ever choose. Uh, and therefore it's a great shame that we haven't got a greater focus on this. And that there, there's a lot of literature around this, for instance, um, if, if one looks at Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he shows in that book that actually even in some very high tech professions, 
where people don't have good emotional intelligence and communication skills, it can be a major hindrance to their career development, um, despite some beautiful academic prowess in some cases. So uh, th these things, we really ignore them at our peril, and the debate has been left on the sidelines for far too long. They say always teach what you preach, and then you just said, you know, a great actor is one who can transmit passion for acting. A great teacher has to be able to transmit passion for whatever she or he teaches. Is it also because you and I are more or less in the same generation? Is it because we as a generation have not explored these things ourselves? And as such, we are very uncomfortable with that. Well, you make me smile, Gabrielle, because of course you are Argentine and I am English. And therefore there are some fairly major differences there. I mean, I was sent to an English boarding school, which undoubtedly I think is probably a motivation at the age of eight. And I can say that it was an emotion-free zone and that the, the, the amount of shadow emotion bouncing unacknowledged around that school was frankly, you know, horrendous. And that was, you know, the British boarding school system in the 60s, 70s. I think it's, it's a little different now, um, but we still have a long way to go. Um, Argentina, obviously, I've, I've had the great pleasure of spending more time in Argentina, and, and I would say that it's very difficult to generalize about these things around cultures, but there is more emotional openness, in my view, that I've seen in the Latin world. I know all cultures have huge challenges, but there is a lot of warmth. I, I found that, that uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of emotional connection in, in, in many friends I made in Argentina and a, a, some great emotional literacy in, 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 in uh, many of the, the people I came into contact with and, and certainly many of the students. But uh, we are definitely more of a culture that has been for a long time emotion, uh, what we might call emotionally phobic. So rather than just say that as a kind of buzzword, let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's take a corporate group. Actually, it could be a school group. It could be a group of students trying to do something for their school. Any of these would apply. And there is tension within the group and conflict within the group. And people are not behaving in a particularly supportive way with each other. We have very little education in how to manage that dynamic. So how do we develop more authentic, grounded, honest, robust cultures of communication within corporations and in schools where people can say, okay, I don't agree with you or what you've just said has made me really angry, but I want to find a way to resolve this with you so that we can be far more authentic, open, grounded and adult with each other. And we're not given a lot of education in that. And therefore, a huge amount of the a huge uh, amount of this stays unaddressed, buried, but it's felt. The group feels it. They can feel it in that meeting. They can feel the discomfort. They can feel the tension. And the same is the case in families and in all kinds of different social units. But it's not being addressed. And there's often a sense of we don't know what the tools would be that would address it. And this is a real deficit that needs um, attention. Moving on in our final segment to the, to the leadership work you do, Ben. Your company is called Contender Charlie, and I've heard you many times tell the story of why it's called Contender Charlie, but let's go one level deeper. Why did you choose that name? Not only why in terms of the movie, et cetera, but why was that the name that you wanted for your company? Well, the, the, the reason for the name of the company is, as you know, Gabriel, but I, you know, those listening you know, almost certainly wouldn't, of course, is um, uh, because there is a Marlon Brando film called On the Waterfront. 
And Brando was probably my favorite actor when I was a teenager and I wanted to become an actor. He was so truthful. I mean, in, in the, and not necessarily in his everyday life, but when he was on stage or on film, he was such a truthful actor, so simple, so uh, such a force of nature. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, this is, this is a true, uh, you know, what I, what I would consider a truly great actor, an amazingly, um, uh, someone who really embodies, finds the character in themselves and lives it and, ha and, and emanates it with an incredible amount of charisma and passion. Um, and the result of that was that um, I, one of my favorite films was Brando as um, the kid in On the Waterfront where he plays a kid from the New Jersey docks who stands up against the local mob, who are corrupt, who've killed his best friend. Um, he's a kid who's pretty inarticulate. He's a boxer. He's made to take a dive in a fight to win money for the mob. Um, they treat him like dirt as they do so many people in the poverty of the docks that they, on which they live in New Jersey. And uh, Brando's character is called Terry Malloy, then basically turns on them. And because he's cornered, he's got nowhere left to run. And I think Brando's performance in that film is one of the great performances in the history of, of, of American cinema. Uh, it's extremely moving and it's a, 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 a seemingly very powerless young man who actually has extraordinary leadership skills and integrity, but he cannot see himself as a leader. And in fact, as so many of us do, he needs a mentor who is in his case, the local priest, who calls on him as a figure who could actually make a difference in the community. So the Brando character is never gonna get a scholarship to Harvard or Oxford. He's not top of the class academically, beautiful, amazing skills though those are for any young person. But he also is a true young leader. He has real leadership skills in him, but he doesn't see them and he doesn't realize his own power. And that realization of our own power in the best sense of the word, and of our own leadership journey, because a great way to look at emotional intelligence skills and many other aspects of communication is through the responsibilities of leadership in our own lives, whoever we are, in the leadership of our own life, that through that, um, he makes a huge difference. So uh, there's a very famous scene in the back of the cab where he says, I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. It's always misquoted that line and his brother's called Charlie and people always say, I could have been a contender Charlie when they impersonate Brando or used to impersonate Brando in that role. Um, so I called the company contender Charlie for that reason. But it, it is really underneath, it's a kind of, you know, slightly kind of um, disguised uh, message around everything really the company is trying to represent. Yeah, that's wonderful. Ben, in your journeys around the world and working both with uh, with corporate leaders and, and, and young people in schools, how how can you transcend the conventional definition of leadership to that who's the strongest, best grades, more successful? How can you discover the, 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 the Marlon Brandos of, of the world? Well, Brando, of course, in his everyday life, I'm not sure would have made a great leader. I have to say that he, he did do a great deal around looking at issues such as the rights of Native American Indians in, in, in the United States and so on. But Brando was a very unstable man in many ways. And this is one of the things that is a great difference between acting and psychology. Yeah, so then let, let's rephrase that. How can we help them tamper that and become more healthy in their leadership? And, and this, But discover those people like... That, that are not conventional markers for, for leadership in, in schools or in corporations? 
Well, you see, it's interesting because the thing about the acting metaphor is that actors can get really good at being able to express emotion, but they're not necessarily good at understanding their own deeper underlying motives. And it, and it can be a profession that has a lot of narcissism in it and a lot of problems that go with that. When it comes to individual students, it's very interesting if we use a word like strongest. Strongest at what? You see, in our lives, all of us will have met people who are not necessarily academic superstars or in any kind of senior leadership role. But when things are bad or things go wrong, they seem to be the most dependable, the most grounded or the most accessible. In other words, they give more of themselves. They are the people who seem to be the most caring, the most loving, the most dedicated. Um, I, 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 an example I can think of, for instance, very clearly, who, who's a man I know in, in, in Buenos Aires is uh, my partner, Flor, her father, is a man who is a doctor, but this is an enormously caring, kind, decent man. And for me, this is a leader. And it is about inner integrity first and foremost, which then will dictate a lot of outer action. And that sense of deep connection and responsibility to others, that how we act and its effect on others, uh, is an extremely important theme. We're far less likely to be abusive to that. We feel deeply connected to while also being conscious of our own feeling states. And when we go wrong about that, we can make terrible mistakes. Um, and we have to really work a lot on that inner turbulence. If we see our lives as being like a sea, it can be the Mediterranean on a clear sunny day, or it can be the Southern Ocean in a great storm. And people whose lives have been more difficult in terms of a lot of early trauma, they're going to have more of that great storm in the Southern Ocean or more of a sense of numbness, if you like. We have to work on that relentlessly. I still have to remind myself of that every day of my own life. And as we work on that, something remarkable can begin to happen, which changes a, a, a large part of what we mean by a word like leadership because it begins within and it begins with ourselves. And then it's about our intention and what we really want to serve beyond just our own ambition. How can we do leadership better at schools? How can we go beyond, again, recognizing the, the conventional type of leaders we usually do in most schools all over the world? For me, the, the, one of the things that is really vital in that is for people to wake up to or reawaken to the deep interconnection between us all. So as staff, as students, as parents, whoever we are, there is a tremendous interconnection between us. Our responsibilities to each other in how we treat each other and how we uh, um, address each other, how we, how we, the hopes we have for each other, the communities we build together. There are huge responsibilities here. And these are responsibilities of care, concern, positive psychology as well. Uh, people like Martin Seligman have written beautifully about that. The need for a positive but grounded outlook and especially with those who, who find it difficult to be more positive about themselves. Uh, and the support, the mutual support of those communities could develop a thriving and very different educational model. So we have to start with our treatment of each other. But of course, that begins most of all with our own inner life and, and our own inner motivation. Then we go to the treatment of each other. 
the building of a community, enormous respect for those and that which is around us. And we begin to develop a very different model of education and of leadership, which is far more collaborative and deeply interconnected. Final, final two questions, Ben. One is related to what you just said. How does that relate to uh, the adults in schools, like the leadership model for schools, principals, head of departments? How, how should that evolve? Because it's still pretty much what it was for, for the last hundred years. I, I, I wouldn't say it's the same as it was for the last 100 years. If I think most of the head teachers I work with now, and if I think, for instance, of, you know, what I saw when I was a kid and I was, you know, in the 1970s in the UK, I think that, that there have been major, major changes in that area already. But uh, I, I certainly think that what applies for the students applies for every staff member in terms of personal responsibilities. So as was famously said, Mahatma Gandhi famously said, we must be the change we wish to inspire in the world. That is a great quote for all educators. We must be the person we wish to try, or we must do our best. We must strive to be the person. But it, doesn't, it doesn't apply to staff us. meetings, does it? Well, it should be applying to everything. <laughs> And where it doesn't apply to staff meetings, you've got an issue right there that needs addressing. Okay, thank you. And final, final question. Uh, which we're asking every one of our guests. Uh, suppose you, you know, in, in, in recognition of your long career and all the good that you've done for thousands of students all over the world, the genie comes out of the bottle and says, Ben, I'm going to give you, grant you one wish for education in the world. What would that wish be? Kindness. Kindness. That we are kinder to each other and more respectful of each other's lives and feelings. And you can do that and still develop a highly educated and academically rigorous curriculum as well. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You can find this one, all past and future episodes at conversations.thelearnerspace.org Once again, that is conversations.thelearnerspace.org where you will find a complete summary for each episode as well as links and pointers to resources that relate to each of our guests. It is always wonderfully inspirational to chat with Ben and beyond the many learnings that we can derive from, from this conversation including the necessary essential focus on, on inner lives and how by developing a stronger inner life a stronger sense of awareness and connections we, we can finally achieve that elusive sense of leadership that we want to instill in schools but also the passion that exudes and presents as, as I mentioned in the conversation I've been a privileged witness countless times to Ben's magic and beyond the fact that he's a wonderful actor and a great speaker uh, what really shines through is his genuine passion and sense of self and connection with uh, his innermost being which allows him to be uh, absolutely genuine when when he connects with students and adults alike so i guess the most profound learning is whether we're an actor or a teacher uh, it is the passion that makes a difference and there is no passion unless we are truly connected with with who we are thanks and we'll see you on the next one